series today, a brand new thing to start. We're excited about this on earth as it is in heaven. Someone is thinking, didn't he already preach about the Lord's Prayer? We've already been through this. And the reality is, yes, I have, and no, that's not what this is about. So uh, the question we're asking is, what does it mean? What does it actually mean to truly live on earth as Scripture instructs and as Christ modeled? When Jesus said, pray in this way, and then he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what did he mean? Do we yearn for what he meant? So, so what we're actually aiming for in the next five weeks is to take this thing that, that a lot of us see as a really good idea. Oh, on earth as in heaven. That's a cool idea. And to realize and to kind of apply that this is not simply something that Christ intended to be an idea for us. But it's an actual set of instructions for us. And so this series kind of works on two levels. On one level, it's actually a deeply theological and philosophical study of, of what does it mean to be the church? What does scripture say about our um, role as followers of Christ in this world? So it's God's character, God's practices, and then the second part is deeply practical, which is where we say, how do we get those principles into our heads, into our hearts, and ultimately into our, into our hands? I think ultimately God wants um, his character to become our character, and, and that's something that's kind of a heart-level thing. It just is who you are. It is what you're becoming. And as I think about how we get things into our hearts, we're Western people. Uh, we're in a university town, a Western university. And so um, Europeanized kind of the Western world, we do things in a certain order, right? You go to school and you learn so that when you get out of school, you can then do what you learned, right? That's how we do things. And if you're lucky enough, you just keep going to school and then you're in grad school, and then you're in law school, and you decide you don't want to do law school, and you do medical school, and eventually, you know, if you can milk it long enough, you can be in school until you're like 70. So, and then, only then, when you're out of school, do you have to actually do the thing that you learned how to do. But this is not the Eastern way. The Eastern way is you do the thing in order to learn what it is. And so Jesus was the son of a carpenter. Jesus, it's not in the Bible, most likely, if he was like every other Jew at the time of his life, at eight years old, at nine years old, at 12 years old, Jesus was following his dad around. Jesus and Joseph were doing stuff, and Joseph is showing Jesus what it means to be a craftsman. And he's doing it so as to learn it. Jesus wasn't handed the book of carpentry and said, come see me when you're 21, but it flipped it. And so what we do as even the Western church is we are still in learn it, learn it, learn it, and only when I know it will I do it mode. And I think what the scripture is telling us over and over and over again is do it, do it, do it until you learn it. And so that's what these next five weeks are ultimately going to be about. I, I use the example of cooking. If you wanted to teach a child or your grandchild, or you want to teach them how to cook, to really love it, to get it into their heart, would you hand them a recipe book and say, here you go, enjoy that? Or would you bring them into the kitchen and let them get their hands in the dough and let them put the, that's how it works. You learn to love it when you do it. You don't learn to love it through the book. And the same thing is true of us. If, if I hand somebody our recipe book, it's not a recipe book, okay? If I hand somebody a recipe book and I say, if you just, you'll learn it. And once you learn it, then you'll know it. And then once you know it, you'll learn to love it. That's not how it works. If I put my hand out, and I say, come along the journey with me. Let's learn it together. That's where it gets into our hearts. And so we, as Westerners, are head, then heart, then hands. And I think what Scripture teaches us is it actually works in reverse. That if it starts in our hands, then it, it sinks into our hearts. And once we get it into our hearts, then it actually starts to make sense in our heads. So this is where we are. On earth as it is in heaven. So today, we start this series with the question, what does it really mean to be welcoming? 
I would say to have heavenly hospitality. What does it mean to have heavenly hospitality on earth? Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, uh, verse 1. Scripture says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is a reference to uh, Genesis 18, Abraham entertained angels. He was uh, hospitable to them. And so you can go back and look at that. But so the book of Hebrews is written to who? Hebrews. Father Abraham being kind of like an important one. And so the first thing in this chapter is being said is Abraham did this. And he was actually entertaining angels. And so if Abraham can be hospitable, what about us? Verse 3, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So we start with this idea in, in verse 2, hospitality to strangers. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. The word there, the Greek word is philozenia. Okay, philo, like Philadelphia, brotherly love. And then xenia, which means stranger or foreigner. So on the positive side, we have Philadelphia, brotherly love. On the negative side, we have xenophobia, the fear of others, the fear of someone different than me. And so that's what this word is. It's combining others, different people, strange people, and love. So it's saying, go find a stranger and be loving. We live in a hostile, fear-based culture. When I moved in a couple years ago, I walked across the street to meet my across-the-street neighbor. If you listen to this, I'm glad we're friends now. And he's a pastor of another church in town, turns out. His church uh, would have um, some slightly different theological leanings than us, and so therefore has some different uh, beliefs about the world around him, a different worldview, we would say. And I walked across the street, and when he found out who I was and what I did, and we're shaking hands in the middle of the street, he goes, well, it looks like we're going to have to draw a line right here. And we can be friendly, but I don't know that we're going to be friends. And he was sort of joking, I thought, but mostly not. There was like disappointment in his face when he found out where I was going to be the pastor. As if when I said, yo, I'm going to be at Covenant Church, he goes, oh, then we'll have to be enemies, won't we? There was like fear just dripping through even the first interaction. We have the same Jesus, but he assumed that uh, the differences in our relationship might just cancel out the relationship altogether. Why? Because that is our wiring. That is our cultural uh, milieu that we sit in. We live in a fear-based culture. The University of Bath in uh, the United Kingdom did a study, study on motivators, and uh, they, they kind of put fear on one side of the ledger and success on the other side of the ledger. And what they wanted to find out was, was what's the greater motivator? Is the greater motivator, I, I want to be successful, or is it fear, I don't want to be a failure? And I, I won't go through the results of the study. I'll just tell you the title of the paper when finished was Fear is Stronger Motivator Than Hope. I like that they use the word hope, though. Fear is a stronger motivator than hope. And so what we have to recognize as we kind of exegete our culture, we have to realize that this has become true of us as uh, the Western church. That differences drive wedges, that we, we look at politics today and we go, look, politicians on both sides are, are just increasingly divided. We're increasingly hostile to the other. This is not new. This is not even generationally new. There's people in here who would remember LBJ and Barry Goldwater. If you, you, those names sound familiar? Some hands go up. If you don't want to out yourself, just pretend you don't know, okay? I'm not that old. So as a history student, we learned a lot about this is kind of when, when fear came into uh, political races in a, a really profound way. As Barry Goldwater was um, hawkish with use of nuclear weapons was his reputation. He was willing to go nuclear if he had to. And uh, 
LBJ put an ad out, and it was called the Daisy ad. If you Google Daisy ad, Daisy political ad, you'd see it. And there's a little girl picking a flower, and then a mushroom cloud shows up, and the whole screen goes white. And it's like, don't elect Barry Goldwater. And it changed the way political advertisements went for the rest of history, is that instead of positive, here's what I'm about, here's what I'm for, here's what I'll do, it's about, aren't you afraid if the other guy gets elected? Aren't you afraid if she's in charge? Aren't you afraid if he gets elected? What will we do? And so now you go, why is everything so negative? Why is everything so negative? Everything is negative because our brains are wired that way. If you, it, neuroscience confirms this. You go down to the, the kind of core of who your, your kind of reptilian brain is. The, the strongest driver is the fear-based driver. At our core, we are wired to have that be brought out in us, to have our insecurity and our fear have that button pressed, and then we go in fight-or-flight mode, we are good at flight. So in America, we have largely, and I'm not talking about covenant-specific when I say in America, the, the Western church has become largely fear-driven. We become a church besieged. We put bigger walls up to keep the others out so that we can stay pure to who we think we should be. A church besieged by enemies, both real and imagined. Reality is we were designed as ambassadors, as missionaries. Missionaries, those sent out. And yet we often, in our lives, in our churches, in our society, we pull the blinds and just hope they can't see us. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. This is a, a city that is the Alamo City. It is known for the Alamo. The Alamo is visited by multiple millions of people every year who show up and then are profoundly disappointed when they realize how small it is. You walk through it, and it's about the size of this stage, and you go, that was it. We drove all this way for the Alamo, and we always go, sorry, enjoy the river walk, have a margarita. So <laughs> the Alamo is famous because it was a siege. There was a siege at the Alamo. The Mexican troops surrounded these brave and valiant fighters of freedom. Does anybody know how the Alamo ended? Not good for the brave and valiant fighters of freedom. The Mexicans easily won because it was a siege. They cut off all their supplies, and eventually they just went over and ran them over. And then they burned all their bodies in the street. And there's a memorial to that. Once you're done walking through the Alamo in the 13 seconds it takes, you can go see the memorial. That's what happens in a siege. Whoever is being besieged, most often you lose. Sieges don't end well. So if we are our, uh, a church, as a people, if we are enacting our own self-imposed siege, we're going to block ourselves off from everyone else. Guess how that ends for the church? Living on earth as it is in heaven requires us to replace quiet fear with perfect love. It requires us to be the sent ones we were called to be, to be the ambassadors we were called to be, to be the ones going out on the offensive. It requires us to apply this both kind of institutionally and personally. It requires us to practice it in our lives or to use our opening illustration. It requires us to get our hands in the dough a little bit. My grandmother, when I was growing up, I don't know if she's the one who gave me the love of cooking. I really enjoy cooking. It's fun for me. I think it's the learning. I just get to learn about new stuff, and I cut something. I go, this smells different. And, and so we love to try stuff and cook things. And, and my grandmother, when I was growing up, had, um, you remember this. Some, some of you have this, had this, still have it. Uh, the tile uh, countertops. She had, like, pink tile countertops. And the pink tile backsplash, and it was all very, you know, 1973. And so she would have me on this stool, and when she would make chicken and dumplings, because if you're not 
from the South, you have to make chicken and dumplings. When you, when you would make chicken and dumplings, she would bring me up on the stool, and she would lay the dough out. She'd let me roll the dough out, and I'm like, this is awesome. And then she'd give me a knife, so, you know, shame on her. But she'd give me a knife, and she'd say, just cut along the tile lines. And I would get to cut the dough and make these little squares. And then I thought I was done, right? I'm like, well, she's never going to let me get anywhere near that boiling pot. But, you know, in 1983, she's like, come on over. Come on over to the boiling pot. Now bring all your dough and drop one square at a time into the boiling pot. And it singes you and it splashes on you and everything burns and everything's terrible. And yet when you eat it later, you're like, whoa, that's pretty good. And so I still have her recipe and I still make her recipe at our house. And when it comes time to do it, my first inclination is to invite my girls over and go, here's your knife. Because I want them to love it, not just eat it. I want them to love it. But in order for them to love it, they have to get their hands in the dough. And I think this is the same thing that's true of us as a church. 1 John 4, 18. The writer says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This is different. So Rob last week uh, masterfully talked about fear as it relates to our, our reverent fear of God, the awe that we have, this, this the filial fear. There were two types of fear. There's one that's not real healthy. If you didn't hear it, you need to go back and listen to it. It's really well done, and, and you'll learn something. And that'll actually help us understand what this is. So that's a fear as it relates to God. This is talking about fear as it relates to the larger culture around us. Fear as it relates to everything outside of us. Fear as it relates to condemnation. That's the context of the passage. It's referring to a fear of condemnation. That I, I act in a different way because I'm so afraid that if I do something wrong, I'm going to end up in hell. And what this is saying is that the love of Jesus was for us, and as a result, we are included in it, and as a result of that, there's no reason to fear anymore. Because if we are set apart and secured in him, then fear can go away. We still have a reverence for God, healthy God fear, but we no longer have a fear that if we step out wrong, or if we sin to the left, or we should have gone right, like, uh uh-oh, God's going to get me. Because we're included in Christ, and we're safe now. As the kids would say, we have eternity on lock. That's what they would say, like eight years ago, so don't, don't judge me. Same is true for hospitality. Slower to answer uh, a door at noon, or are you slower to answer the door when someone's banging on it at 3 a.m.? If someone's banging on your door at 3 a.m., how are you feeling? Those of you who are weapons owners, you are reaching for weapons. Those of us that are not weapons owners are just really scared. <laughs> if someone's banging on my door at 3 a.m., I feel profoundly insecure. I don't want to answer it. And what raises up in me? Fear. Because of my insecurity, I don't know what this is. It's a little bit of fear of the unknown, but it's a little bit out of the ordinary, and I don't know what this is going to be, and so fear rises up in me. The fear of the unknown is often called the greatest fear. If you can name a fear and you can clarify what the fear is, you can usually get over it, but if you don't know what's coming next, you can't actually deal with it. The same is true in church. We greet our friends first in church. We make a beeline for the person we like, the person we know. Why? Because you're secure in that relationship. There's no chance it's going to be awkward. Unless, like me, you're just generally awkward. There's no chance it's going to be weird or that you just have security in this. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, it says, you know, greet strangers. It also says take care of each other. Be hospitable to your brothers and sisters and welcome the foreigner. Don't forget When I ask people what makes covenant different, I've been here for a few years now. We're in year three, so I can say that. 
And there's enough people that are like me, relatively new. And when I get them uh, in a moment, I'll say, hey, what, what makes covenant different? Why covenant? And a shocking majority of people would say people were so welcoming to me. People were friendly to me. People said hi to me. People came out, went out of their way to come and meet me and know my name. It's simple hospitality, but it's not as simple as that. Simple hospitality is a reflection of something eternal that's happening. It's a reflection of a hospitality that Christ first showed us. You ever been to a restaurant and no one greets you when you walk in? Like, you, you, you know, it says, please wait to be seated, and there's no one there to sit you? How long before that gets really uncomfortable? Steph and I were out a few weeks ago, and, and some people were coming into the restaurant, and eventually the bartender— you see the bartender look over and he goes, they'll be right with you. And then he goes and he looks in the kitchen and he just starts yelling at people, there's someone waiting to be seated. And I'm looking at the people at the front door and they feel uncomfortable, but they're thinking, they're looking at their watch. They're just going, you know what? This isn't hard. There's a place next door. We can go there too. And it's that sort of feeling that drums up even in us when we come to a place like this. You know, it's not that hard. There's one down the street. In a growing church, this is a huge deal because as we grow, people who've been here for more than a couple years look around and go, I don't know any of these people. I don't know. I could say hi to this person. They've been, and we've done that before. Hey, I've never met you. Are you, are you relatively new here? They'll be like, nope, been here for 14 months. And you go, boom, cool. Well, I'm glad you've been here for 14 months. It happens. And as you grow, you go more and more people look unfamiliar. So, so what naturally happens in a growing church is people start turning inward. And they start just going to people they know because as you grow, you go, oh, there's fewer people that I actually, gosh, I don't know. I don't want to look like a fool, which is based in what? Fear. What if I go up to that person and they say they've actually been here for eight months? Won't I feel silly? No. They'll feel welcome. When we think of foreigners as a people, we think of nationalities. That's when we hear foreigner. And I think in our digital world, in our connected world, that's um, that's decreasingly true that foreigner has anything to do with ethnicity. Foreign is more about a worldview than a nationality. So if you think about it this way, we would more likely, uh, Western church, us probably on some level, we would more likely welcome uh, a Christian from Shanghai or from Kinshasa or from Philadelphia or from San Francisco. We would welcome the Christian because they speak our language, they know our lives. Yeah, okay. More than we would welcome the atheist from the Bird Street who says, you know what, I don't know about you people in this Jesus thing. I don't know if this is for me. And we go, oh. It's hard for us, but that's what strangers is starting to, in our global connected world, we're less worried about where you're from, your ancestry. Hopefully, we have work to do, but hopefully we're less worried about color of skin, or the world you grew up in. Hopefully, we're getting to a place where that stuff falls to the wayside, and then we have to start looking at, it's really about worldview. It's really about, am I as comfortable talking to my, my pastor neighbor as I am talking to my lost neighbor? Am I as comfortable talking to, I don't know. And when I'm honest about it, the reason I don't often talk to my, my neighbor two doors down is fear. Because he's a gruff dude. Yeah. And he's told me he's not real into the whole uh, religion thing. And I'm like, I'm not either. And he didn't buy that line for a second. Great pastor trick. And so I'm like, 
I'm going to walk over there, and if we build a relationship over the next five years, I could then lay out the gospel for him, and he could reject it flat. And so I fear rejection. I fear the waste of five years of my life that, you know, what, what was this even for? The Bible doesn't say calculate out the likelihood of that person following me. The Bible says show hospitality to strangers. Show hospitality to people unlike yourself. The healthy church, the healthy Christian lacking fear and being secure in truth isn't afraid of skeptics, isn't afraid of folks who hold a different worldview. What, what the healthy believer does is learns how to hold a tension, tension between two points. So if you had a rope and you could pull it taut, that tension is necessary. And the tension is between, on one hand, the eternal security that you and I have in Christ. I am eternally secured in him. On the other side is my present humanity. I haven't figured it out yet. I am still a human being just like you. And somewhere in between, along that line, between my eternal security and my present humanity, that tension reveals a commonality that we share. That every single one of us starts there. And as that tension gets pulled and we keep that rope, we build a bridge from one to the other. The bridge from my present humanity to my eternal security is our common humanity. It's me being able to say to my neighbor, I know exactly what you're going through. I've been through that. It's me being able to say to my neighbor that religion doesn't work. You're right. And even though he doesn't believe me, building relationships so then he understands what I mean when I say that the next time. But it's having to hold that tension to remember that I am eternally secure and so I mustn't fear. And not living in the sweet by and by and waiting for the day when the sweet chariot takes me off to heaven's gates. It's waiting in my present humanity saying there is still work to be done. Jesus didn't say, kingdom come, your will be done as soon as you get to heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. The instruction was to make this place look more like that place. Common ground is in that humanity, and so what we have to do once we've realized that we no longer need to fear is we need to begin to understand what others fear. And that's the place where real magic happens. That's the place where, where connection happens is when it stops worrying about what I'm fearing, what if he rejects me, and I start worrying about what he fears. He fears that I'll reject him. He fears that I'll judge him. He fears that I've already judged him and written him off. And so his defensive mechanism is to write me off in advance so I can't hurt him because he got rejected earlier by somebody. Or he grew up in faith and then this priest said a thing to him at some point that really set him off the wrong. He's got fears in him. My job is to listen long enough to understand what his fears are. You meet the young unmarried pregnant woman and, and you go, oh gosh, well, what does she fear? She fears life is about to change because the baby is going to bring some big changes in my life. She fears my world is imploding, but I'm also going to get judged if I show up with these people that are so righteous and perfect. What she should find, rather than any of those fears made real or any of the judgment that she, what she should find is radical hospitality. It says, man, we all have stories. Join ours. Hmm. But what about, no, can we throw you a shower? Can we help you with this? Can we, how, how can we, what, what can we do? She should find care. Perfect love that casts out fear in that scenario is, is care. What about your atheist neighbor? He fears exclusion. She fears derision. She fears judgment. What's perfect hospitality? What's perfect love there? It's called listening. I've got a series coming up in September. I'm going to get way ahead of myself. But I'm reading this book uh, about astrophysics. 
you know me at all, and you know the grades I got in science and math in uh, college, you would know I have no business reading about astrophysics. But I want to read about astrophysics, and not from a Christian worldview. I'm, I'm reading about a Neil deGrasse Tyson book about astrophysics, because we're going to be teaching about what does it mean to build these bridges between science and faith? What does it mean to—we're going to spend like, like seven weeks kind of going through those big problems with God. Those things that we can't answer when someone asks us, those things that the, our neighbors, they'd ask it, and that's the reason they won't believe. And we're going to kind of spend some time digging into those and, and creating some, some pathways to answers. And so my response to that is going, I can fear. I can fear. I have no idea what 90% of this stuff is. The problem with science and God, here it goes, and I could just repeat what somebody else says. Or I can listen. And so I pick up the atheist astrophysicist book, and I want to learn the world from his point of view. I want to learn the way that he sees it. I want to learn the science as it comes from someone who has no belief in God. And only when I understand how that brain works and what his hang-ups are and what his fears are of admitting that there might be something greater that caused this whole thing, then I can speak to him. But I have to listen first. What about the family that's, quote, been away from church for a while? We've all been that family. They come in and they fear they're not going to be invited to the table, that there's not really room for them, that, that we already have all the cliques and groups that we have and that we need, and we're just extra. Fear being judged for not knowing what a 40-year Christian who's been in church every single Sunday since birth might know. There's a reason every single Sunday uh, I repeat the exact same instructions about communion. If you're honest, and you can giggle if you like, you get a little tired of me saying the same thing every week. You might get tired of me saying the same welcome every week, and then the same thing about communion every week, where every week, what I'll do at the end of the sermon is I'll say, hey, we have some bread on the table and some juice, and what we do as a remembrance, as a reminder, is we take the, the, the bread and we dip it in the juice, and it's our remembrance that, that Jesus, his body was broken and is represented by the bread, and his, his blood was spilled so that we would be cleaned and made pure, and that's represented by the juice. And so when we, when we eat of that, it's our reminder, it's our remembrance. And if, if that's uncomfortable to you, I will say in a few minutes, there's no judgment. You don't have to do this. It's not, it's not some holy um, sort of magic thing. It's our holy reminder. And so you feel comfortable to do it as, as however you want to do it. And the first time I said it, people were like, that was really cool. I'm, that's, we engaged people. We were welcoming. And it's like, if I was uncomfortable, I'd feel really good about that. And the 312th time I said that, people were like, oh, gosh. Can we just get to the music thing, and can you get off the stage? But we say that because that's called being hospitable. How do we find fearless love? Call it the never, never, forever principle. Never, never, forever principle. I'm going to put that on the screen so you never, ever, never forget it. The never, never, forever principle. This also comes from Hebrews 13. This is the heart of security of the Christian faith. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? It says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Never will I leave you. Literally, that says never, never. If you read the original, it says never, never will I leave you. Two nevers. And, and never will I forsake you. That's three nevers. But that actually means the same, never, never. So we're up to four, and then it says, you know, I will not be. There's five negatives. In those first two sentences, there's five negative words. The Bible says, never, 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 never will I leave you or forsake you. 
Does that make it clear to you? Because we read it as, oh, never, ever. What nice kind of flowing poetry. That's sweet. And the original was much harsher than that. Never, never, never will I leave you. Imagine a parent looking at a child who has been lost in a department store and bringing them and saying, never, never, never will I leave you. And the intensity of that relationship and the intensity of those words and the repetition drives it into our souls. God is never going to leave us. He is never going to abandon us. And what's more, never, never, forever. He's unchanging. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the heart of Christian security is in the never, never, forever. He will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if I can rest in that, if I can live in that, if I can wake up and put my feet into that every day, then all of the things I fear, all of the reasons that I'm closed in, all the reasons that my life is sort of, is sort of my own thing and I don't want to share it with others and I don't want to risk my life and my relationships with people, all that stuff goes away because you go, what do I have to lose? He's never leaving me. He's never walking away. He's never giving up. And he's always going to be the same. We are awash in his perfect love. Love drowns out fear and unleashes hope. Love drowns out fear and unleashes hope. So when the university says that fear is a greater motivator than hope, we say it is until Christ gets involved. Because perfect love is seen in Christ that we are included in perfect love drowns out fear and unleashes hope upon the world. And so when you see someone you've never met, you can greet them. No fear. When you're in a community group, you can invite them. 90% of my community group has gotten into my community group this way. We see them on Sunday. We go, hey, don't know you. What's your name? And they go, here's my name. And we go, we're going to have lunch in 30 minutes. Want to come? And they go, okay. And then we show up, and then the rest of the community group, which is probably slightly annoyed at this point, but will never tell me that, will go, what is happening? Every few weeks we show up, and there's like new people. And there's always new people coming in. And some people, that one never came back. What was that about? And I was like, well, you know, it happens. And yet, that's the model. That we meet at my house, and we have lunch together, and we talk about our lives, and we pray for each other, and then we go out and we serve the pregnancy center. We do that so that we can be ambassadors to the city, so that we can begin to build the city of God in the city of Bowling Green. And so over and over, I'm just inviting people. And we'll get in the car, and my wife, she'll go, what, what? Okay, uh, I think, yeah, we have more chairs in the basement. Just bring those up. We'll figure it out. Because that's what fearless love looks like. And so the group is now, it's, it's actually kind of the sweet thing we giggled about last time we got together, is the group is just ready. And other people in the group have started doing it too. They're like, oh, by the way, I invited this couple. They didn't come, but they might next time. But who knows? But I just invited them. And we go, cool, more people. And that becomes an exciting thing. We can, we can bring them in. So anybody who's not in a community group, we meet next week at 1215 at my house. If you want to go, sign up on that list. You can come. I'm going to need a bigger house. There's a fear we had to get over, though, as a group. What if they mess up our group chemistry? What if they're needy? What if they're weird? What if they don't like me? Which is my way of them basically going, what if they're like us? <laughs> what if they're needy like me? What if they're weird like me? What if, what if they don't like me? Because I don't really like myself right now, and I just can't have someone else projecting that back onto me because that's a weird psychological loop. So let's just, let's just not do the group thing. And I would say, what if a dysfunctional band of believers is exactly what someone needs at this moment? What if God wants to use 
our meager lunch and some kids in the basement and some prayer requests shared and a meal taken to the pregnancy center, what if God wants to use that to drive someone into faith and family and life and purpose? So, we're getting to the close here, I promise. We are called to live life outside the gates. Life outside the gates. Still in Hebrews 13, verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Where are the people? Outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. This is beautiful and mind-blowing. The writer is saying that people are dying out there. And Jesus died for us, so let's get out there and give our lives for them. This is our story. Ephesians 2, Paul says it this way, Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Xenia but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Church, we were all wanderers brought in. We were all outside the camp, and Christ left the camp to find us. We were all strangers and foreigners, and our Savior looked out and said, I will go get them. Jesus calls us to then live outside the camp to be a welcoming source of love and hope that the world needs. So how do we apply this? Be active in the community. If you have a band of believers that you're already doing life with and you're out active doing life, keep doing it. If you don't and you want to be in a community group, a band like we have, there's a sign-up sheet on the back table. If you say, you know what, I don't know if I want to be in someone else's group, I want to start my own group. There's a little space you can check that too. Because we always need more. We always need more places, more times, more causes to send people to because the world is increasingly dark and yet the light of Christ burns brighter. You can be active on a Sunday morning. Informally, our challenge is each one of us comes in this place, whether this is your second Sunday or your 20th year. Every single one of us as followers of Christ should be dead set on meeting someone new every Sunday. If you go home and you haven't met someone new, turn around and come back. If everybody's already left, we'll be back at 10 a.m. next week, and you can wait as long as you like. You can help with the construction. We can use that. Informally, meet someone new. Formally, how do you apply this? You say, okay, but I, re- I, I want to be a part of this. I like this whole idea of welcoming hospitality. That rubs me up. There are people in here, your spiritual gift is hospitality. We have... Uh, two sign-up sheets right in front of the little giving box on that same table. It says hospitality team. Greeters, coffee, host, ushers. And then there's this window. If you walk out that door and look to your left, there's this big 10-foot-long open window. And in a few weeks, it's going to say information center above it. Which is, if I was coming here for the first time, that's where I would go to figure out information. Where do I take my kids? Are there groups here? What do I do? It's the front line of how we meet someone who comes in off the street and says, does this place have room for me? 
And we don't have an information center team because we've never had an information center. And so we're going to build one from scratch. And if you want to be a part of that, you can put your name on there. You can write which part you want to be in if you want to be in something like that. I would encourage every single one of us to have our place that we're serving the body with our spiritual gift. And if you are at all welcome, if you can smile, (laughs) we want you there. We need you there. Church is like practice for the real world. Like maybe that's not your thing. You're like, I'm smiling really hard for me. Maybe I want you there even more. As a certifiable introvert, when I stand at that door and greet people every Sunday morning, it is the best thing in the world for me. Because it connects me to people and it reminds me this is why we do this. And if I leaned into my natural wiring, I'd go hide in a corner somewhere and never talk to anyone and I'd be perfectly satisfied. And yet when I lean against my wiring and I go out and I do something that matters, which is making eye contact with 150 or 250 people every Sunday and going, I'm glad you're here. Maybe, it, maybe it's helping you, I don't know. But it changes me. So I would challenge you to figure out what is your part in that here. And as we grow here, then how do we take it there? Jesus established the first welcoming community, a Savior willing to pay the high price of true hospitality. He gave his life so as to include us. And he said, when you pray, pray in this way, on earth as it is in heaven. So whether you lose your preferred seat as we add new followers to the family, or we actually sacrificially give our lives to others to see faith grow and light expand in this city, Our prayer is that our quiet fears in the face of change would be overwhelmed by the love of Christ that is in us and that that love of Christ that is in us would grow to where it is overflowing in the community around us. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you chose us. God, that you chose to send Jesus out of the perfect community you had. That you chose to send him into harm's way. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to invade the mess that we are in and to carry us out into something greater. Father, I pray that as we as a community try to digest what it means to do the same for others, God, that you would remind us of our security, of the never, never, and forever that are true. And as our fears dissipate, Father, my prayer is that we would replace the fear with love and that the love would be overwhelming and this community would be changed. God, that our neighbors that are hurting, our coworkers that are lost, classmates that are in pain and isolation, Father, we would be the people to welcome them into something greater. Not into a church building, but into a family of God. So, Father, we pray for your guidance in that, for your courage and your boldness. Thank you for who you are and who you will always be. We love you and pray in your name. Amen.